0: Here's what we've been doing the last few weeks is we have been doing a series called You Asked For It and you have submitted um, hundreds of questions via text message or Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of good stuff and we've been trying to go through as many of those as we can and this is going to be the last weekend so we're going to try to get through um, the rest of the questions. I know you guys got lots of questions and we're trying to get through as many uh, as as possible and so um, yeah if you're here for the first time this is kind of fun you get to you get to maybe hear some of the answers the things that you would have asked as well. So, let's, uh, let's get going, and we're going to see how many of these questions we can, we can jam through, all right? So, first question, can Christians drink alcohol? Okay, first of all, <laughs> I did not ask you to answer the questions. <laughs> Second, I know you can. I've seen you drink it in large amounts before, okay? So, um, so, so the question, can Christians drink alcohol? Well, uh, let's kind of sort this out a little bit. Can they drink alcohol? Well, all right, on one level, yes, Christians can drink alcohol, right? Because Jesus drank alcohol. It, it, in the scriptures, it doesn't say not to drink alcohol. It says do not get drunk, right? It says to be of sober mind, and that, that includes any kind of other substance um, that would alter our mind state. But I think that there's a better question. Because yes, we can make this generic statement, yes, Christians can drink alcohol as long as they're not getting drunk, but I think there's a better question. The question is, should you drink alcohol? Oh, that's not as fun, right? So... I, I, th- I think that, that when we ask this question, we need to figure out, is it wise? And that may depend on who you're around. It may depend on um, your past experiences and, and your future hopes and dreams and goals. And, and so, for example, let's say that there's somebody in your family or your group of friends and they have struggled with some kind type of addiction. Would it be wise for you to be drinking around them Well, well, no, because that's going to make them stumble. That's going to make them struggle, is they're in recovery, and then you're making it more difficult on them. Or or let's say there's somebody in your house, and you know that they struggle with addiction. Maybe it's not even just alcohol, it's just addiction in general, that they have this addictive personality like myself, and so having alcohol around them probably wouldn't be a wise thing. The other is, is it something that you rely on? Is it something that brings you joy and comfort? So let's get, into, let's get into some people's kitchens um, figuratively and literally for a second here is I know that there's lots of folks probably in this room who at the end of the day, they are just so looking forward to that beer or to that glass of wine. It has become the place of comfort and joy in your life. And so anything that we have that becomes, uh, that replaces what Jesus should be doing, which is being our joy and our comfort and who we rely on, and that can be food, that can be Netflix, that can be anything, um, that means that it's become an idol in our life and that we have to demote it. And so um, I think the question is, and I can't answer it for you, you and Jesus are going to have to wrestle with this, okay? Is... Is it wise for me or my family to drink alcohol? And I'll tell you where I stand on this deal: is uh, my family has decided, and this is uh, true uh, for a few generations now, is because we have a history of addiction, and because, because we don't want to, um, we don't want to make other people stumble. That we're just not even going to touch alcohol. That it's just not, it's not worth it for us. And I'm not saying that's what your household has to do by any means. You do what you're supposed to do, but just ask the question and wrestle with it is it wise for me to do that? Okay, next question. We've already started on a fun note. I can tell when you do alcohol up front, it's just gonna be like down from here. All right. Uh, How is it possible to forgive someone for hurting you without justifying what they did? So forgiveness is obviously a big part of the the Christian faith. And C.S. Lewis says, everybody likes the idea of forgiveness until they have someone they have to forgive. And then it becomes really, really tough. And so what does it mean to forgive? Forgiveness is about letting go of a particular set of emotions or feelings that you have towards somebody else who has wronged you. So it could be bitterness, it could be anger, it could be this desire for revenge, and so it, it's really letting go of that, uh, of that set of emotions that you have towards that other person. Now, this does not mean that you forget what they have done. We always hear, well, you need to forgive and forget. No, I don't, I don't think that's wise, I need, to, I need to forgive, I need to let go, but I can still remember that they've wronged me. In fact, it might be um, why I should not have a relationship with this person in the future so they I don't continue to make these mistakes, but I have to let go of that negative emotion. That doesn't mean that I don't pursue justice if it's needed. Is I remember hearing a story recently about a woman whose son was killed, and at the trial of the killer, uh, the, the killer. She stood up and she said, because I'm a Christian, because the Scripture tells me if I want to be forgiven, I must forgive, and so I'm telling you here today that I have forgiven you. And that's, that's probably the, the hardest thing to forgive, is someone who has taken away your child, and yet she says, I have forgiven you. Now, did she say, "Now I don't think he should go to jail? No, that's not what she said. In fact, she was there to make sure that he went to jail, but she was not going to hold on to that bitterness any longer. He still had to experience the consequences. She was not justifying what he has done, and yet she was not going to harbor that bitterness or anger anymore. I think that the, as a Christian, um, there is so much in life that unless, uh, unless I was a Christian, I don't think I could, I, I don't think I could let go of that It's because we have a different motivation than I think the rest of the world does, is we know that we've been forgiven of much, that our Creator came and died for us, and He forgave us, and so we can forgive other people, and that's a very strong motivation. That's a a very important resource that we have. I don't know how other people do it, but as a Christian, I know that I'm called to do it, and so um, we do. Okay, next question. What does it mean to give everything away to follow Jesus? Does that mean no luxury items, travel, and fine dining. (laughs) Okay, Uh, let's see. First part of the question, what does it mean to give everything away to follow Jesus? Well, I think we should clarify that Jesus doesn't tell us to give everything away to follow him. He doesn't say if you wanted to become a disciple of me, you must give everything away. What he does say is you must be willing to give everything away. That in order to follow me, um, you come with open hands and you say everything in my life is yours I will do with it what you want me to do. That includes my relationships, my finances, that includes my future um, hopes and dreams. All of it is yours. And so if he does call you to do something, it's a no questions asked deal. And so we see these different interactions that Jesus has in the New Testament. A couple that pop into my mind is, is something like the, the encounter with the rich young ruler in which Jesus and this really wealthy young man um, meet and he asks Jesus, well, how do, I, how do I inherit internal life? And he says, well, what you need to do is you need to sell all your possessions, give it away to the poor, and then follow me. And he goes away sad, because that's not the answer he was hoping for. There's other times where somebody's father has just passed away, and and he comes over to to Jesus, and he says, you know, um, let me bury my father, and then I will follow you. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. There's no time to waste. It was probably about inheritance as well, and he says, don't worry about any of that stuff, because following me is far more important He also warns other people that there's going to be a cost to following him. There might be a loss of of relationships. There might be a loss of opportunities. You think about the disciples, and he says, come and follow me. I want you to leave behind all of your, your possessions. I want your job, your family, where you grew up. I want you to leave all of that in order to follow me. And so the message is pretty clear. We have to be willing to give up anything he calls us to give up. And so the question about fine dining and luxury items and, and, you know, travel, um, I think is the wrong question. I think the question is not, okay, can I do this particular thing, and can I do that particular thing? I think it's, um, how do I best honor God with my finances, right? It's all His. I'm going to have open hands, and so if He wants me to sell it all, great, but for the most part, he's probably going to call you to, to do a couple things, um, to live in this tension between being a good steward of the resources he's given you and enjoying them. Because he didn't put you in this place in time, and all of you guys are wealthy uh, by, uh, by world standards. All of you guys are wealthy by global standards. And so he did not put you here in order for you to feel guilty about it. He wants you to enjoy it. In fact, uh, this last week, my wife and I, we went out to dinner. And we went to a, a fine dining restaurant. <laughs> fine dining restaurant. And it was great. And I didn't feel guilty at all for going because I knew that this was one of the best things that I could do for my marriage was spend a night out with my wife where we got to a- eat great food. We didn't have the kids. We just got to sit and have nice conversation about life and, and about our future. And I think that was probably the most God, God-honoring thing I could do with that money then and there to enjoy it with my, with my spouse. And yet I also know that I'm supposed to be a steward of all the resources. And so in order to stay in that tension, I think that we have to plan. We got to come up with a plan. Is, uh, some of us are good savers. Some of us are really good spenders. Um, very few of us are good givers. And so we have to come up with a plan and say, okay, God, what does it look like to enjoy and be a good steward of what you have given me? how much am I supposed to give? How much am I supposed to save? How much am I supposed to spend? And so you won't even have to ask questions like this because you've already sorted that out. I know that this is what God's calling me to give, and so I give it. I know that this is what's wise, and so I save it. And then it's okay if I spend because He wants me to enjoy that too. And so I think that the key is to come up with a plan of how you can honor God with your finances. All right, how do I deal with doubt? how do I deal with doubt? I I like this question because this is um, a question that hits home for me is I have been a Christian my entire life but in my 20s I really went through kind of a crisis of faith and I still to this day struggle with thoughts of doubts and do I really think this and is this really true and and that's just a part of my faith journey and and this doubt has led me to well one it led me to get a master's degree in theology because I really wanted the answer to some certain questions and so I'm like I'm gonna go find those and it it strengthened my faith in the end. The doubt actually pushed me uh, in order to learn more about what I believe, and so here's kind of what I've come to come to think about when it comes with doubt, is you got to figure out what the source of your doubt is, and I think that there's four categories that influence our beliefs and uh, our doubts. So the first one is social, is if you think about a lot of the, 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 the beliefs that you have, And that can be in what fashion looks good. That can be in your politics. That can be in in taste of food. That can be in music. If you think those are shaped by the people that you surround yourself with and the culture that you live within. It's because we are heavily influenced by the people we surround ourselves with. And and so if you were to um, look at maybe the source of your doubts, it might be because of the people that you've surrounded yourself with. If you go to work and at work, they're not just, uh, they're not just, uninterested in your faith. They're antagonistic, where they just think it's ridiculous you believe in this, that I can't believe you give your time and your money and you volunteer. Why would you do that? That's just absurd. That will have an influence on your faith. And so that's maybe the source of your doubt, which I think is why Jesus implemented this whole thing called the church, because he says you need to be around other people who believe what you believe, where you can build each other up, where you can strengthen your faith with one, in one another. That moment that we had a minute ago where we were just putting our hands on, uh, on the people around us who are maybe going through something and praying, whether you are on the receiving or the giving end of that, there's something powerful about being here together and praying for one another. And that's why Jesus implemented this whole thing, is because he knew that our faith was going to be dependent upon other people in the community around us. Another source of doubt and, and belief is, um, is, is experiences, like emotional experiences, and so if you think about maybe the season that you're in or, or some past that you're dealing with, it could be the loss of a loved one, it could be a breakup, it could be a transition in life, a season that you're in. It, it could even be, and, and if we're being honest, this is probably, uh, probably more likely. Is it's something that we want to pursue that our faith is getting in the way of? So as a young adults pastor and a youth pastor for a long time and people would come in and be like, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm doubting right now. I'm, you know, first semester college, philosophy 101, you know, I'm just really, and I just want to ask them, are you sleeping with anybody? And I did. I would always ask them. It was so fun. They were just like, go? You didn't know the conversation was going. Here is because, here's what I know, is that you may have something in your life that if your faith were to be proven not true or untrue, you could pursue that thing or that person or that lifestyle, and so you have to ask yourselves, is there anything in my life that would be more convenient if my faith were not true? Is there anything, anyone, that my faith is kind of getting in the way of what I may desire to do, and that might be the source of your doubt. The other is um, intellectual is oftentimes what we try to do is we try to point towards, I think it's an intellectual thing I'm wrestling with, and it could be. You might have some really valid questions, this piece of information that you've heard. You watch the Discovery Channel, and oh my goodness, I didn't know this, and whatever, and that's fine. That might be the source of your doubt, and if it is, I think you need to go, and you need to just research that question until you're satisfied with the answer. Just go. Dig into it, because here's what I believe, is um, this faith is reasonable, Like that there's reasons to believe this stuff. And so I can take any question. I think I've heard most of the questions if I haven't asked them myself. And I have researched them because I want to know the answer. And there seems to be a legitimate answer to pretty much all of them. I'm not saying you're going to get 100% certainty by any means, but I don't think you should be afraid to dig deep and figure out if this thing is true if it really is an intellectual thing that you're dealing with. And then the last one is physical. I think we all know that there is a connection between... um, What's happening with us physically and what happens with us mentally. And so it could be anything from you struggle with a mental illness, and it's attacking your faith, to you're just tired and you're hangry. I, uh, I, had a, I heard a, a professor talk to a student, and the student was dealing with some doubts and had you know, some questions, and it wasn't like they were new questions, but like it was really bugging this person all of a sudden. And he said, you know, before we jump in and we start wrestling with these questions, tell me how, how you're doing with like sleeping and eating, and are you feeling rested? And he just kind of started asking him, just how, how are you doing physically? Well, I'm really tired, and man, I haven't, have been up late, and I've been studying hard. He says, let's just do this. Just take two days, get rested up, take a couple naps, make sure you get good night sleep, then we'll come and we'll talk about this stuff, because, you know, I just want to make sure that, that you're mentally prepared and physically prepared. And by the end of it, he was like, I'm good. I was tired. That kind of helped it. And it could be that. You could just be exhausted, and your doubts are really, uh, 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 you know, physical, uh, something that's happening physically. Okay, next question. If God created man, who created God? So you probably did not grow up in a pastor's home, um, but I did, and we used to ask questions like this all the time at the dinner table, and uh, we'd wait till my grandpa got in town so that we could actually get an answer because my dad wasn't helpful. <laughs> but um, we'd ask questions like, you know, if, can God make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? And you know, just those. And, and this is kind of one of those questions. Um, and I think that if you were to ask this question, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. So God, by definition, is this necessary eternal being meaning He is uncreated. If we're talking about a created God, we're not talking about God of the Scriptures. And so if the God of the Bible does exist, we believe that He exists necessarily, meaning that He, he has to exist, and that He has existed for eternity past. And so if you were to rephrase the question and you put the definition of God in there, it would be something like, um, who created the uncreated? Well, it doesn't make any sense, Because by definition, God is an uncreated being. Now, you might want to push back and you go, well, okay, then why believe that God has existed eternally? Why not believe that maybe the universe has existed eternally? And I'm sure you know the arguments to this. You get into, you know, the Big Bang cosmology, and you get into infinite regress, and if there is an infinite series of events, how do we get to today? You know all that stuff, okay? So we don't need to to jump into that, Um, right? You know that stuff? Okay, good. Great. All right. Can we lose our salvation? Ooh, that's a good one. Can we lose our salvation? So um, what's funny is I have, I lean towards one answer, and my dad would lean towards another answer. And um, and so it depends on who you ask, but I lean towards no, you can't. He leans towards "Mm, maybe you can. And here's why I don't think it matters, is because practically speaking, there's really no difference whether you can lose it or you never had it. Because here's really practically how this works is if there is somebody, and maybe it's you, and, and you said that, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus and you give your life over to him, and then maybe it's for a season, maybe it's for years that you begin to walk away from that faith. Maybe you reject it totally. The question is, were you saved to begin with or did you lose your faith? And I don't think that the answer matters because the solution is the same. Follow Jesus. Right? You should follow Jesus, because either way, you're not in a right relationship with Him. Whether you ever had it or whether you lost it is irrelevant. And so I would say, to know where you stand with your relationship with Christ, and you shouldn't be nervous about this, but you should be aware of it, is the, the Scripture calls it fruit are you making progress? Do you see change in your life? And so if you were to review the last six months, year, five years of your life, and you were to say, okay, here's where I was then, and here's where I am now, are you seeing progress in your life, in your faith journey? Are you becoming a more loving person? Are you loving Christ? Are you following His commandments? When you do mess up, because we do, are you feeling convicted of your sin? All of those things, I think, are evidences or fruit of where your, your relationship is with Christ. All right, keep going if salvation is a free gift, why then are we held accountable for how we lived? Okay, so I think what this person is referring to is that the Scripture tells us at the end of time that all of us are going to be judged. Everybody on earth is going to be judged. And the, the believer in Jesus stands in front of God as He judges, and He reviews all the things that we've done, the things that we've said, the things that we've thought, the, the, the motivations he is going to stand there, and he is going to review all of our good and bad deeds, and as he reviews those, if we do not have a relationship with Christ, he's going to keep, hold us accountable and say, okay, now why should I let you into my perfect eternal home, into a relationship with me? Do you think that you're good enough to enter into perfection? And he would say, of course not, but as a believer, we stand there and we say, look, we know that we've screwed up. We know that our life has been a mess. We know that, that, that we do not deserve to enter into this perfection, and so it's by your Son, Jesus Christ, that we, are be able, we have access into that. It's by His life that He lived and the sacrifice that He made that we are going to be judged upon, not our own. It also says that, and this is probably the rewards part that they're referring to, is, and there will be a reward for those. So we're not talking salvation, Salvation is free. You can do nothing to earn it. It is given to you. It's a gift. You just receive it. However, there are rewards. Then there is a new heaven and a new earth. It says that we are going to receive different rewards based upon what we've done here, how we've lived out this faith, how we've loved other people. And so depending on how we've done with that, again, it's not entrance into eternity with, with God. It is responsibility in the new heavens and new earth. It's different gifts that we may receive based upon what we have done here on earth. And so we always joke around that, um, around the staff, that uh, whenever somebody does something really good, we go, you just got another jewel in your crown in heaven, buddy. I think by saying that you lose it, but (laughs) anyway, whatever. All right, here we go. Uh, Does prayer change God's mind? So this one's, I want to make sure that I'm clear on this one, okay? So I'm going to, I'm going to maybe try to ask two questions. First one, does God or does, does prayer change God's mind? No. And you don't want it to. Because think about that. If you were able to pray and convince God of something, that means that you saw something God didn't see, where He's like, wow, I didn't even think of, my goodness, I should change that. I didn't see that one coming. Thank you, Cody. Thank you for your insight. You don't want that kind of God, right? You want a God who has known for eternity past what He's going to do, okay? And so, no, we're not going to change God's mind. He knows what He's going to do. He knows what's going to happen. He foresees that for eternity past, but I think the other question is, does prayer change things? And I would say most definitely yes, because um, the Scripture tells us that we are to be persistent in our prayers, and that somehow it has an effect on the world. Now it doesn't change God's mind, but it does change what happens within within this world. And you might ask, well, how does that work? And, and I think the answer, and this is maybe a little bit complicated, um, I think the answer is that God, in His foreknowledge, knew that if He placed you in this given circumstance, you would pray, and it would align with the will that He has already had, and so He will grant that prayer request. I know it's early, it's Sunday, it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. Don't worry about it, okay? Here's the other thing that it does. It doesn't just change the circumstances around you, it changes you. It begins to change your motivation, it begins to change your desires, it begins to help you align with the Father's will, it becomes your will. And so yes, it changes things around you, but I oftentimes think more importantly, it changes you to be aligned with Him. Okay, next question. Gosh, all these philosophy questions. Do we have free will? If God knows everything in advance, why would He give us free will if He knew we would mess up? Okay, so let's see here. Do we have free will? Yes. If God knows everything in advance… Okay, all right, first question. So, God's foreknowledge. He knows what you're going to do in in, in every given circumstance. He's already seen what's going to happen. I think the confusion lies in just because God has a foreknowledge of what's going to happen does not mean that He has caused that thing to happen. Let me see if I can give you an example. Um, I know my son really well. He, uh, he, he loves Oreos. He's like me. I love Oreos. He loves Oreos. In fact, he loves Oreos so much he will go downstairs in the middle of the night in the dark and eat Oreos by himself. <laughs> That's how much he loves Oreos. And so let's say that I sat him in a chair and on the table in front of him, I put some Oreos and then I walked out of the room. I know what's gonna happen. He's gonna eat those Oreos. I'm not like 100% certain because I'm not like God, but I'm pretty sure what's gonna happen. And so when he eats that Oreo, did I cause him to eat the Oreo? No, of course, he made that choice on his own. He, he, He was free to not eat or to eat. And yet I knew what he was going to do and because there's not a relationship between God's foreknowledge and our free will. Just because He knows doesn't mean He caused. Does that make sense? I see a couple nods. I see a lot of blank stares, though. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, Why would God give us free will if He knew we would mess up? That's a great question. So why would God create us if He knew that we were going to mess up? Well, I think you've got to Figure out what God's purpose in creation was, and that was to create people who could be in a relationship with Him. And the only way to be in a relationship with Him is if we have the opportunity to choose or reject Him. We have free will. That's the only way that relationships and love work, is if there's a choice. And so He gives us that choice, and there will be people who have the opportunity to, of course, accept Him, but to reject Him. And so He couldn't have just created a bunch of people who freely accept Him there has to be a mix of people who also freely reject him. And so, here's how I think about it. Let's say that uh, God God granted you 5 children. And he says, you're going to have 5 kids, but here's the deal. 3 of those kids are going to love you and you're going to be in a relationship with them for the rest of your life, but 2 of them are going to reject you and want nothing to do with you. Would you still have those 5 children? And I think every parent would say, "Well, yes, of course." Why would I miss out on having three kids who love me and we get to do life together and we get to love one another because there's two kids that are going to reject me? Why should they miss out because of the other two? And I think God looks at creation and decided the same thing. And he says, okay, I can create a world in which the most free people will choose me. And in that world, there's going to be a large number of people who reject me. I'm willing to make that sacrifice because I want those people. And I think that's a that's why, why there are so many people who reject God, and yet God still chose to create them. Okay, next question. Do you think God ever uses pain to bring us closer to Him? So, does God, let's, let's ask a couple of questions. Does, uh, does God ever cause pain? So, does God ever cause us pain in our life? And I would say yes, and here's why. Because like a good parent, in order to discipline your kids, you may have them experience some pain in order to shape them, in order to guide them, in order to get them back. And so I think God does the exact same thing to us as He uses pain. He may even cause us pain in order to discipline us, in order to bring us back. Not because He's vindictive, not because He wants to hurt us, but because He wants to win us back to Himself. And so do I believe that He causes pain in occasions? Now, do I believe that probably the the majority of the pain we experience is just because we live in a broken world and it's a consequence of that? Most definitely. I think it's a consequence of us being messed up and the world being messed up that we experience lots of pain. And so whether God um, has, has done it through discipline or he has allowed it because we're in a broken world, I think that the primary way that God communicates to us in order to bring about real change in our life is almost always through pain. And that is not good news for the most part, because we don't like experiencing pain. We wish that he would communicate to us through a large bank account, a hot date, maybe some kids that are great, you know, whatever. God, I can communicate that way, but he's going, Nah, you won't listen. You'll think that you've got it all put together if I do that. It's only when you're on your knees and you're begging Lord, show up, that you're willing to listen. And so will God use pain? Almost always. All right, here we go. Is it okay to be cremated after death? So if you're wondering why is someone even asking that question, um, it says at the end of time that, uh, that we will be resurrected in Jesus. His resurrection is like the first fruits, and so we'll have these resurrected bodies, and so they're wondering, well, if I'm cremated, then what happens, you know? And here's what I've realized about this, because I've had uh, lots of people ask me this. Everybody's going to be cremated. Some people just quicker than others, right? Like, think about it. You will return to dust, some people will do it immediately, some people it'll be over time, but everybody's going to be cremated. No, that doesn't, okay, I thought I was creative. Forget you guys. Um, yeah, I, it's kind of funny because that would assume like, you know, Jesus is coming back and the resurrection is happening and he's just like, oh, you got cremated, I can't help you, <laughs> you know, like, it's over. I don't know what you want me to do. It's like, I created you once, you messed it up, it's over, all right? Like, um, I'm pretty sure he could do it again. You know, he did it the first time. Wasn't that hard for him, I don't think. Okay. Uh, do you have to be baptized again if you were baptized as a baby? Great question. So, um, some churches, they will do baptism for infants and for children, and uh, a lot of those are really just the parents dedicating to raise their kids in a, a, a family, and a household that loves Jesus. And we do the same thing. It's called dedication, and we have people stand up here. And, and that's really a choice that the parents have made. And so when we're talking about baptism, we have to understand baptism is about you proclaiming that there has been an internal change, and this is an outward expression of what's happened. And so when you're baptized as a child, that that is a commitment that your parents are making, but you had nothing to do with that unless, you know, you you... you really understood what was happening, but I think most of the time we're talking about infant baptism, and so if that was a choice that your parents made, but you didn't make, yes, then you should get baptized, because it's a choice that you have made, not your parents, and so you want other people to know that this is something that I have committed to do, this is who I have become, this is the new person that I have been made, and so I want everybody to know about it. So, okay, why is it so bad to sleep with your boyfriend before marriage? All right. Um, If you were here during the series, Love Handles, I did a sermon on this, and it was uh, Eros. We talked about the Greek word Eros, and I go through the whole explanation. So go back and watch out if you want more more thorough explanation, but here's kind of the the bullet points. And I was a youth pastor and a a young adults pastor, and so I got this question like once, twice a week. Um, And so here's what I would say first answer is the answer that you're not going to like, which is, because God told you so. And I try to teach my kids that answer all the time, because they'll be like, well, why, why, why? And it's like, because I told you so, because Jesus told you so. Get over it. You're going to have to learn to just deal with this, all right? Because Jesus told you so, because God told you so. Now, there is an explanation as to why, and we have to look at what God had intended when he created sex. See, sex was, was his idea, He invented this, and so he understands how to best use this good gift. And like any good gift that God gives us, it's fragile, and if we use it incorrectly, there's going to be consequences. And so sex is probably one of the greatest gifts that he gives, but when it's used incorrectly can be so destructive in our lives and in the world around us. If you think about, and I asked this question during that series, if everyone in the world just followed this one command— everybody in the world only had sex inside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. Can you imagine the world that we would live in? Imagine the the, the pain that we'd be able to avoid. There would no no longer be STDs. Our abortions would be probably non-existent. Um, Infidelity, all the pain and regret that we've experienced, all of these things we would be able to avoid if we just followed this one command— and it's because God created this gift, and he says, use it the way that I have designed it, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences. And so I think the answer uh, to, to this question would be, well, you may experience temporary pleasure, but there's going to be a consequence for it. And I don't know what that is. I don't know how that's going to play out, but I do know that I would rather avoid those consequences than experience them for a short uh, time of pleasure. Okay. Uh whew. Okay, how is the Trinity three? Oh, I'm out of time. Okay, how is the Trinity three in one? Last question. We'll just end on a fun note. Um, <laughs> okay, so the Trinity, here's the big idea. Scripture talks about the Trinity as three persons. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are three persons, and they are distinct from one another, okay? So, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, Spirit is not the Father. They're all distinct, three persons, and yet they are one being, the Godhead, and so it's three in one. Now, how do we make sense of this? In, in All analogies kind of break down to some degree when you're thinking about the Trinity, and it's not because the Trinity is inconsistent or incoherent, it's because it's really, really tough to understand. It's, it's, you know, above our pay grade, but here's the best that I can do when I think about it, is imagine that you have a three-sided pyramid, okay? You've got a three-sided, imagine this in your mind, you've got a three-sided pyramid, and this pyramid is translucent. You can see right through it. And so this three-sided pyramid has three distinct sides, that they are all different from one another, and yet when you look through one, you can see the other two. They're one pyramid, they're one being, there's three distinct faces, there's three distinct persons in there, but yet when you look at one, you can see the others. Does that make sense? No? We're we're working on it? I'm going to pray for you. Okay, here we go. Lord God, thank you so much for uh, this series and just being able to wrestle through these questions and, um, and just being able to be in a place in which is not afraid of the big questions, of wrestling through some of, uh, some of these issues. And so Lord God, we, um, we just pray that if there's anybody in this room who might be experiencing doubts and they might be wrestling with a question or with faith, or they're just in a, in a tough season, um, that you would make your presence known and that they would feel like this is a place in which they might be able to find some answers. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.